You're listening to a podcast on Catholic Saints. This podcast is produced by the Augustan Institute, an apostolate helping Catholics understand, live, and share their faith. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a little mini-series on saints, angels, and canonization. My name is Taylor Kemp. I'm the director of Formed, and with me is Dr. Elizabeth Klein. Dr. Klein, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Like I said, we're talking about angels and saints, and in this particular episode, we're talking about why does the church canonize certain people, and how does that happen? So first, Dr. Klein, can you give us a recap of what does canonized mean? Yeah, so we talked briefly in the last episode on what is a saint about kind of the broad definition and then the particular definition of a canonized saint. So being canonized means that you're in an approved list, like the canon of scripture, that's sort of, um, you're permitted to be incorporated into the public worship of the church. So someone who's a canonized saint, the church has said it is okay to uh, incorporate their name in the mass, ask for their intercession. So kind of like approved for public worship is what canonized means. I'm going to throw out a, uh, a, a potential non-Catholic Christian detraction. Go for it. In this kind of idea. So if we're saying a saint is someone who is to a greater, hopefully greater and greater degree, participating in the worship of God. And then we're saying a canonized saint is someone that then uh, is, is, so to speak, recognized by the church. What would the response be of like, wait a second, are you worshiping? Like, why, why should you go to a saint to participate in the worship of God? Right. This is a good session. So like, why would I ever pray to a saint if I could just pray to Jesus kind of thing? Yeah. Okay. That would be a simpler way. (laughs) No, this is a good question. Um, And I'm a convert, so I've thought about these these things a lot. Uh, So I think to answer that question, try to do it quickly, uh, you have to understand the Catholic understanding of the church, right? I think a lot of... um, Protestants or maybe even just modern people in general tend to think of the church as like a group of people who get together and worship God. And we think about our relationship with God on like a very individual level, Mm -hmm. like I'm a Christian because I chose it. Uh, But a more Catholic understanding of the church, right, is that the church is the mystical body of Christ. uh, The New Testament agrees with that too. The New Testament talks about it this way, right, that um, we love God because God first loved us. Uh, And so when we are baptized and are persisting in a state of grace, we are actually incorporated into Christ's mystical body. Mm -hmm. So when you think about the saints acting in our lives, um, it's really nothing other than the action of Christ. It's not like we should think about the saints doing things on the side that Mm -hmm. like Christ isn't doing. Uh, Rather, the saints are like the hands and feet of Christ. They're actually his body. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it is true that you don't have to pray Mm -hmm. to the saints or ask for their intercession. Uh, but this is something that's incredibly beautiful uh, and is actually part of God's plan of salvation, right? Because God doesn't want to save us as a kind of like undifferentiated lump, mm-hmm. uh, nor as individuals, uh, but rather he wants to save us with our own cooperation and through like the human experience. And so it's very empowering to, to have saints um, that are like you, that lived in life circumstances yep. like you. Um, and it's a way of Christ's Christ can't live in every time and place. Yep. He became man in one time and place. Uh, and so Christ wasn't a woman, for example. Uh, Christ mm-hmm. wasn't a mother, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have saints who lived like Christ did, uh, but in those other different life circumstances. And I, and I feel like it's it's also recognizing, oh, kind of like the breadth and extension and power of God's love. Like when we're talking about the saints, we're not just talking about people who 
like tried super hard. We're talking about people who were like supernaturally united with Christ to, a, to different degrees and that, he, you know, they participated in his life. As exactly. you know, St. Paul says that he, we make up for what is lacking in Christ's body through the church. And it's like Christ wasn't lacking, but he, he can't be here today. He can't give me an example of uh, what it means to be a saint and a father. He was not um, a, a biological father. He was not a woman. Like these are perfect examples. And it's recognizing that when we turn to the saints, it's not for their own merit. It's for what Christ did in them, which in the kind of expansive love of God leaves examples all through time and space. Right. Um, and then when you think about like, you know, the power of God, like, you know, we say that he created out of an act of love, that his love is expansive. It's expansive and it's creative. Um, and so when you think about like our relationship, our personal relationship with Jesus, which is so important and it is intimate and it is personal, but like you can't just reduce it to just the personal. It's like, no, no, no. God is always trying to like open up and share all that he is. And so it's like, no, no, he's not like mad that we're, we're seeing the good work that he did in, in cooperation others, yeah. with, with another. Yeah. So an analogy I often like to use for this is, you know, if you were dating someone, you're getting to know them and they like invited you over to their family reunion and you responded like, I don't want to go to your family reunion. I just want to spend all my time with you. Yeah. Like, that would be a really weird thing to say. Be red flag. Uh, Get out of there. (laughs) Because getting to know that person's family and friends helps you to know them better. Uh, And so the the saints are the friends of the Lord, uh, right? And he invites us not only to a personal relationship with him, which of course is essential, as you said, uh, but also into the company of all his friends. And so St. Thomas Aquinas says that there's no greater compliment to the master uh, than if you can go to his apprentice. Yeah. Right. So that the Lord has trained up again through his, through his own power, not through uh, anyone's merit apprentices who can um, cooperate and re- even reproduce his work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that it's a, he's, he's very happy. I'd be very happy as a mother. If one of my children going to go to one of my other children instead of just to me, because it's, hopefully accredited to me as a parent. That is, yeah, that is a great example. And it's like what you're seeking in someone else, like it, it reveals, like, as, as you said, uh, going, you want to meet someone's family when you, when you fall in love with them, you want to know more about them. And it's like each, you, you get a fuller picture and it's like through the saints, it, it, it paints this like fuller picture of God's love. So, right. So in, in canonization, so we're going to talk about canonization, canonization yeah, that process. That was a little bit of a rabbit <laughs> a little hole, bit of a but hand- I, I enjoyed it. I hope you did too. But it's it's actually very closely related to the idea of canonization and the original um, kind of question you brought up, which is Protestants would just see the cult of the saints and multiplying saints as a kind of like uh, e- either something superstitious or maybe something kind of like bureaucratic and like mm-hmm. unnatural or something. So it is a question about like, even if we, you know, we know our grandma was holy and so we can ask her for her prayers. Like, why do we need to canonize people? Like, right. what is, why this specific process? Yeah, why question. like a kind yeah. of like legitimation of uh, of the cult of, of the saints? So do you, I thought we'd cover a little bit about the history mm-hmm. and Please. then talk a little bit about the, what I think That'd are some be of the great. benefits. Okay. So um, as I mentioned in a previous episode, sort of being canonized in the early periods uh, prior to the medieval church was sort of like an organic natural process. Someone holy dies, the people close to them venerate them. Mm-hmm. They call them the holy so-and-so, which is, you know, sanctus in, in Latin is holy. Uh, and then they're sort of like cult develops and they're canonized. People mm-hmm. just start incorporating them into worship. So it's kind of spontaneous. 
Um, during the Reformation, the cult of the saints comes under intense criticism, uh, saying, oh, like there's legendary saints mm -hmm. or people are making saints into demigods or whatever. Or they just don't care about Jesus anymore. Or yeah, or yeah, they're they're putting distance between themselves mm -hmm. and Christ by like kind of putting putting the saints in the middle place, um, sort of piling up mediators or whatever. Uh, so the church kind of responds to this in a number of ways. There's a big process of kind of uh, hagiographical research, researching lives of the saints. There are some saints that are kind of like shifted off the calendar for maybe not being real. Uh, and the canonization process kind of comes out of this, namely okay. like an official process of the church to examine a holy person's life uh, and sort of declare them to be appropriately incorporated into public worship. Okay. So the modern process uh, of canonization began with Benedict the Fourteenth. Maybe not a saint that, you, or not he's not a saint. Maybe not a pope. Hopefully he's a saint. Maybe not a pope uh, that you're familiar with. Uh, but he was a very learned uh, scholarly pope uh, who was pope from 1750 to 1758. I think those are the right dates, but around there anyway. Um, so he had the kind of the first uh, modern canonization process. If you're interested in Benedict the Fourteenth, there is uh, he wrote this like enormous thousands of pages on the saints and how to determine their heroic virtue. Not all of it is translated into English, but there are three volumes that are translated into English. Uh, the title of it is Heroic Virtue, a portion of the treatise of Benedict XIV on the beatification and canonization of the servants of God. So Heroic Virtue, Benedict XIV, if you Google that, you can find it. I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's open source now. I'll so take you, your uh, summary, but for those <laughs> interested, take my summary. I bet it is a good read. Uh, yeah, so, so he's kind of... Um, yeah, one of the ones who put this modern process into place, but it's been obviously revised since the 18th mm -hmm. century. Uh, and the most recent revision, which was actually a fairly significant revision, was done by John Paul uh, II in the 1990s. Okay. Uh, so, uh, he and he simplified it quite a bit, okay. which is nice for the fact that this episode will not take forever for me to explain to That's you the right. process of canonization. Okay, so this is how it works. Here we go. So step number one is the diocesan bishop, so the bishop of the area in which the person died, opens mm -hmm. the cause. Okay. So this is similar, like times past, has to be kind of the local community that mm -hmm. knew the person. They open the cause. As long as there's no objection, the person is declared a servant of God. Okay. Usually five years have to pass in order to open the cause. From death. From death. Okay. Um, although this has been waived, you know, most recently for Mother Teresa and John Paul II. John Paul II, II yeah. Uh, but usually it's a waiting period. Okay. Uh, Okay, and then second, so the cause is opened, and then um, testimonies, information about the person's life, any of their writings, uh, these are all collected and put together by the postulator of the cause for sainthood. So obviously that process can take a really long time. Yep. It can take many years to interview people and collect all the things. After all the things are collected, all, all the, called the acta, all the stuff about the saint, uh, they send it off to what is now called the Dicastery for the Causes of Saints. It used to be called the Congregation uh, for the Causes of Saints, but the Dicastery for the Causes of Saints uh, at the Vatican. So okay. collect all the stuff, send it off to the Vatican. At the Vatican, another person is appointed to like summarize the evidence because bishops don't have time to read all that stuff. So <laughs> they kind of summarize it, uh, put it together. A theological commission vets it first. Uh, and if they vote that it should be passed on to the members of the dicastery, then it's passed on. So the members for the dicastery uh, for the causes of saints are all bishops. Okay. So then they see it and they vote yes or no. Okay, if they vote no, cause is dead in the water, no sainthood. If they vote yes, uh, it's passed on to the Pope. Okay. If the Pope says yes, the uh, person is called venerable. Okay, so if they're called venerable, it means that their writings and like moral life has been kind of like vetted fairly thoroughly. Yeah. 
But in order to actually be canonized, uh, to be called a saint, uh, you have to have two miracles uh, attributed to your intercession. Okay. So after the first miracle, you're known as blessed. And after two miracles, you're called a saint. That's it. Easy. <laughs> Super easy. <laughs> okay. So cause is open by the bishop. Then there's essentially a gathering of information and testimony. There's an examination into that to give it a yay or a nay. If it's a yay, it goes to the Pope. Then they're declared a venerable. Then we're just waiting on miracles. One right. miracle is a blessed. Two miracle equals a saint. That seems simple. Um, I also want to highlight too, I believe, could you maybe talk about the engagement of public devotion slash veneration right. within those phases? Because it's different, I believe, between phases. Right. So when so they can kind of start promoting the cause locally uh, when the cause is opened. Because mm -hmm. if you don't start promoting veneration, there'll never be miracles attributed to their intercession. Yeah. But technically at the venerable and blessed phase, uh, the veneration is supposed to be local and they're not incorporated into the universal worship of the church until they're properly Venerable canon. and servant of God? Well, <laughs> I thought once the Pope says venerable, it was like the whole church could engage writings and prayers. Well, privately. Okay. But they, okay. but not publicly. Okay. So, I mean, privately, you can technically have devotion to people who aren't canonized. Well, right. Yeah. Um, but it's supposed to be local. I mean, this is tricky now because we have people like Fulton Sheen isn't really like a local saint, or, no. right? Because they kind of had global impact or... Yeah. Uh, Giorgio Pier Frassati, the World Youth Day. So because of kind of globalization and access to information, it's not it's really not like... clean cut anymore. Yeah, it's yeah. not really that clean cut anymore. Um, but I think it's technically at Blessed that there's they're allowed to be incorporated into public worship of a local community. Okay. Okay. So I'm assuming if we were to keep taking a look at some of these phases. So during the investigation, they're looking at writings and testimonies to make sure that this person wasn't putting forth any theological beliefs that were at odds with the church, because clearly that would be a bad sign. I'm well, sorry. well, both Ian. I mean, so it's just actually really important to know that when the Vatican approves somebody as a saint or their writings, like they're not necessarily saying everything in their writings is like super amazing and you should like take it to the bank. Yeah. They're saying there's no error. Yeah. Uh, and so sometimes people take things like um, private revelation as if it's like on the same level as public yeah. revelation, but that's not the case. Okay. Good the church know. is just saying like there's no theological error. Yeah. That's uh, like with, it's in direct conflict with the church's teaching. Right. Which isn't yep. like a super high bar. Yep. It's just, okay. no, there's no error present in their teaching. And then the testimonies would be a lot about like holiness of life. Yeah. Like, so you can actually, yeah, you can actually read like some of the testimonies of Therese of Lisieux for her cause of canonization. Oh, cool. You can like read um, people's testimonies and not, it's not like every Everybody always is favorable, mm -hmm. right? It's not like everybody always thinks that this person was a saint yep. or so they take, they have to take like kind of all of that. They're still into. human. We're not totally transformed by grace. <sighs> That's typically. right. Okay. Yeah. Um, I want to dive into the miracle aspect. So talk about the miracles. What makes a miracle? How is it? Right. Um, so again, in times past, this would have been a little more flexible, but today almost virtually all the miracles are medical miracles. Okay. And the standard for determining a miracle has like in my, in my view, like an extremely high bar. Mm -hmm. So the miracle, if it's a medical healing, it has to be of a longstanding uh, incurable illness that is instantaneously and spontaneously healed. Mm. So, so something like, oh, you have a 10% chance of survival and then you're healed doesn't count. 
you've got to be it has like, to it has to be it's a, terminal it has yeah. to be it's terminal and by all medical standards like this can't be cured uh, and then in order to verify this, they have both a kind of theological investigation board and a medical one. Wow. So the medical one is is supposed to vet like, okay, this was like a longstanding illness and there was no known mm -hmm. medical way of curing it. And the theological side is supposed to um, investigate whether or not it's plausibly done by the power of God and whether or not it was performed solely through prayers to mm -hmm. the saint. So you can't pray, if you want to promote the cause of like Dorothy Day or Fulton Sheen or something like that, you can't pray to Jesus. You can't pray to St. Joseph. Yeah. <laughs> Only pray to uh, really that saint. You got to like really rely on that one person's intercession. But that's good to know. You know, you think about this, like if I have a terminal illness, like who, yeah. am, I, who am I going to pray to, you know? But I it really is fascinating. You can just Google some of the um, kind of more modern approved miracles through like Lords France. Yeah. And there's some fascinating documentation where it's like there were 70 doctors that were meeting with someone about this. Like, the, yeah. so there's some amazing stuff you can find where the story is kind of told about how did this miracle go through this kind of process. And it's, it is, it is a high bar. Like, it's not yeah. some paid yeah. off doctors that walk in and like it's definitely, you know, they say it's a miracle. Like, it's, there's. And Lourdes is a good example because, of course, there are hundreds of miracles uh -huh. that are reported at Lourdes, but I think there's only like three or four exactly. that are yep. actually like approved. It's only a few. It's only a handful that and are like And one of them miracles. I actually think was somewhat recent. I think there was one. Yeah, I think there was that was somewhat recent. Maybe last year or something. I think so. there might have been like a 60 minutes or Yeah, there was. There was a it. 60 yeah. minutes. So check it out. But Not it, that you watch anything other than formed, but. Obviously not, but if you do, it should be about lords. <laughs> okay, um, I want to talk about, so why, why are miracles a part of the canonization process? Yeah, so basically the, the part before the miracles is considered kind of like human judgment on the person's life uh, because we don't have perfect judgment. We don't no. know everything about them. We can collect testimonies and whatever. So up to our human judgment, we can declare them venerable. Mm -hmm. But the miracle part is seen by as kind of the uh, imprimatur of God on the mm -hmm. life of the person. Because the point of canonization isn't simply to determine whether or not the person was holy, but to determine whether or not we can licitly incorporate them into, mm -hmm. into worship of God. Uh, and so for this, it's seen as sort of having a, a divine... Um, Affirmation, almost. Affirmation yeah. of, of the person's uh, sanctity. And this is like a really, I mean, this is a really traditional sign of sanctity. Jesus mm -hmm. performed mm -hmm. signs and wonders to prove his, his mission. Uh, and this is sort of throughout history seen as a kind of confirmation of the sanctity of a person that God works through them in, in that way. Yep. No, and, um, you know, it's important to recognize that the church doesn't make saints. The church recognizes saints, as you're right. saying. And so the church in this canonization process is not trying to take its favorite sons and daughters and, and make them and incorporate them into the canon of saints. The church's canonization process is trying to, so to speak, um, uncover, discover, um, be affirmed that this person is in heaven with Christ. Right. And that, as you're saying, like in, in God's will, he is allowing certain things to happen through this uh, person's intercession to affirm what the church is trying to discover, which is the truth. Are they in heaven with Jesus or not? And does God 
want the church to recognize him or right. her as such. So it's it's a good way of thinking. Right, about and it. like, um, and that's a good distinction because there are lots of people who are in heaven who are not canonized saints. Mm-hmm. We don't know and all the people who are in heaven. We don't know all their names. And you don't have to be like super discouraged if your favorite holy example is not <laughs> yeah. necessarily canonized because in private yeah. devotions, you're still sort of permitted to ask for that person's intercession and, and look to them as an mm-hmm. example. But I think the high bar for canonization and the process is actually really important for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that as human beings, we like love to have heroes. And yeah. we don't necessarily aren't like not that good at necessarily picking our heroes. Like if you're an, a teenager, you know, you like idolize certain like Taylor Swift. boy actors or Taylor yeah. Swift or whatever. You know, people look up to particular, uh, you know, someone like Elon Musk or some politician mm-hmm. where it's like, well, these people may be excellent in certain aspects of their life, but generally are not very good people mm-hmm. uh, on the whole. We're not saying anything <laughs> about any of them. No. Just an example. Not making, not making a judgment on any yep. particular person. Uh, but generally the heroes of the world are not exemplary in every aspect of their life, unfortunately. Uh, Usually like fame and money has a tendency to do that to people. Um, And so to have the church set up people as like appropriate, Mm -hmm. safe heroes, models models for Christian life, uh, I think is is very valuable. Uh, So that's one one thing I think what canonization is good for. Uh, Another is, although we don't know all the names of everyone in heaven, it's like really comforting to know that there's someone like me in heaven. That is so true. It gives us hope. It gives us like a really concrete, this is why I have already mentioned Dorothy Day. I hope Dorothy Day becomes a saint because I think it'd be really nice to have a saint who had an abortion. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's just- It's so true. I think it's just really good to be able to look to like, I don't know, for me, St. Monica, like helicopter mom, she made it. You know, she she made it <laughs> no, and her son so made true. it through her prayers. Uh, it's just very comforting to, to know. And like whoever you are, whatever your state of life, whatever your situation, you can almost be guaranteed that there'll be a kindred spirit among canonized saints that you can look to and have that hope of heaven, have that confidence in your own life. And it affirms the power of God's grace. Like you can look at St. Augustine as a perfect example. Like most of us hear St. Augustine and we think of this great doctor of the church who is amazing because he is, but he also lived a super wayward life. Like his life didn't have to turn out that way. Um, But God's love that kept pursuing him and finally he responded and it transformed his life. So yeah, we can look at these things and see like people that struggled with X, Y, Z, be like, I struggled with that and be like, you know what? They were changed. They were, you know, it, it, it is such a beautiful yeah. message of hope. Absolutely. And St. Augustine became Catholic at the same age that I did. And then I figured like, he still wrote a lot after that, right? Yeah. I got a lot. <laughs> I got a lot. Hopefully uh, you don't die by your having your hometown sacked. But. Uh, I mean, he died. He, he died of an illness. Wow. Okay. But anyway, while it was, while being, it was being sacked. That still wouldn't be <laughs> yeah, ideal. You know, maybe the doctors couldn't get there, yeah. but... Uh, but yeah, so I think that sort of affirming the reality of heaven and there's there's almost like no sure sign of the reality of heaven than the intercession of the saints. Mm, that's true. Because yeah. like if we're actually going to pray to dead people, mm-hmm. <laughs> that shows a lot of confidence in... There's people in heaven. And that there's people there and that they can help us mm-hmm. uh, because we can, we can say, we can talk about heaven, you know, all we like in the resurrection of the body, but... Um, I think the proof is really in the church's practices, which actually rely on the existence of heaven uh, and, the, and the saints who are there. And Paul says that we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. Like part of it is that there is the, the it's the mystical body of Christ. There's the, the body of Christ that is glorified in heaven, united with him. But then there's those of us that are seeking to live uh, as part of the body of Christ here. And so we're connected to them. Like you're not alone. We're not alone in this. Not only because we have 
Jesus, but because there's all of our brothers and sisters that are also part of the body. So of, of course we're connected to them. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed this very brief run-through of the canonization process uh, and have some maybe points to bring up in conversation about why the church canonizes people um, and what it means and how it's valuable to the spiritual life. Yes, so thank you for joining us. Thank you for being a dedicated listener to the Catholic Saints podcast. Your support truly uplifts us. For those seeking additional thought-provoking content, go to formed.org. It's a platform brimming with resources, including insightful videos that align seamlessly with our podcast's themes. If you're finding value in our podcast, please consider taking a moment to leave us a review. Your feedback serves as a cornerstone for our growth and outreach.